Hello and welcome to episode 111 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today's podcast comes to you from the Travel Lodge in Barnstable. And to think that I've been called Alan Partridge before. Here I am living the Partridge dream. Now where's my plate? I'm recording this on Christmas Eve, so it's a chance to say a very happy Christmas to you and to thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Let's get into today's story, which is one of festering hatred, petty criminals, horses and thrash metal. I'm delighted that this podcast has again been sponsored by Away. Away creates thoughtful standards for modern travel, universal pieces that reflect your personal travel style and make every trip more seamless. Everything they make is designed to solve real travel problems for life and work together to make every trip better. So all that's left is the world in front of you and the people you share it with. I use an away case for travel and I love it as it's lightweight, it looks great, it's easy to transport and it has a super usable washable laundry bag as well as an inbuilt mobile phone charger so that when I arrive at my destination I am ready to start researching the next episode of this podcast. Listeners to this podcast can claim £15 off a suitcase. Just head to awaytravel.com slash UTC and use the promo code UTC, all in capitals. That is awaytravel.com slash UTC and use the promo code UTC to claim £15 off a suitcase. So go there right now to get some great luggage and to support this podcast. Thank you. Before we begin today's story, a huge thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon this year, but especially my new supporters this week. That's David Wilson, Kathleen Ritchie and Miriam Kingsley. And also to longtime supporter Maggie James for her incredibly generous additional donation. Thank you all and thank you to all my Patreons so much for your support this year. I think you know just how much I appreciate it. The main events I cover today took place on the 2nd of September 2014, so let's take a brief look at some of the music around at the time. Amazingly for this podcast, number one was a song I love, Prayer in Sea by Lily Wood and Robin Schultz. Wow, I knew if we kept going long enough we would reach this point. Rude from Magic topped the UK charts, and in Australia it was thrash metal topping the charts, in the shape of Ariana Grande with My Everything. This is the month where Scotland voted to stay a member of the United Kingdom in the independence referendum. Great news for me, as the UK plus Scotland true crime podcast isn't quite as catchy, is it? Monsoon rains caused flooding over a sustained period and killed 400 people in India and Pakistan. And the horror of Ebola was prevalent in parts of Africa. The World Health Organization estimated this month that 1,900 people had died from the Ebola virus out of the 3,500 people infected in Guinea, Liberia, Nigeria, Senegal and Sierra Leone. As I said at the start, I'm in a room in a travel lodge, don't ask, um, in Barnstable in Devon. So if it's a bit echoey, I'm sorry, I apologise. Back to normal next week. Well, maybe it's better than normal, who knows? Have you spent much time in the New Forest towards the south coast of England? It's a beautiful part of the country. I've enjoyed some wonderful sailing in Lymington in particular. At the eastern end of the New Forest stands Bewley Village, which has remained largely unspoiled by progress, and it's a favourite tourist stop for visitors to the New Forest, and also for birders seeking local specialities like the Dartford Warbler 
and the European honey buzzard. It's not a place known for violence or crime. But then on September the 2nd, 2014, everything changed. Mum of five, 47-year-old Penny Davis, had been married to her husband Peter for just four months. Unbeknown to her, she was followed from her work at Sainsbury's supermarket in her hometown of Blackfield to the field near Bewley where she kept her horses on the afternoon of the 2nd of September. It's a quite stunningly beautiful spot, quiet and with amazing wildlife. But that peace was about to be shattered forever by Penny's screams as she was brutally attacked and left to die. When Peter first saw his wife lying in the field, he thought she was sunbathing. But as he approached, he quickly realised something was wrong. Terribly wrong. Trembling, and in a state of utter disbelief, he called 999. The pathologist who examined Penny's body, Dr Cook, made clear the nature of the devastating attack she had suffered that afternoon. Her post-mortem examination found seven injuries to Penny's torso, five to her right arm, and one to the back of her left hand. She concluded there must have been at least 10 strikes of a knife, which would have measured about 3.5 centimetres wide, to cause the 13 wounds. Penny's injuries included stab wounds to her liver, a kidney, her lung, and two strikes which completely cut through two of her ribs. In her statement, Dr Cook said, Of the stab wounds to the torso, six are potentially fatal, but wound six, involving a large branch within the right lung, would have caused more rapid collapse and death than the other wounds. The next day, around the serene, beautiful field where Penny had been murdered, police officers dressed in orange jumpsuits searched the Bewley River, desperately trying to find the murder weapon. Another ten or so officers, dressed in black and wearing purple rubber gloves, walked slowly looking for clues in a straight line, just yards from where the brutal murder took place. Detectives believed that Penny was attacked by one or more killers, who then abandoned the weapon nearby. D.S. Barton, who was leading the inquiry, said, We believe the weapon used was a bladed item, possibly a knife, and then it would most likely have been discarded close to the scene. Our officers have been working around the clock, following up on a number of inquiries, and I'd like to thank everyone who has contacted us. We've had a fantastic response to our appeal, and have received more than 150 calls in the last day. Teams of officers have been posting appeal posters around the scene, in the hope of jogging the memories of drivers and other passers-by. D.S. Barton said it was vital that anyone with information got in touch, including anyone who saw Penny's green Toyota Land Cruiser the day before. They also asked the public to report anyone behaving suspiciously or running away from the scene. D.S. Barton added, Penny's death has come as a shock to many people in the local community, and I want to reassure them that we're doing everything we can to investigate her murder. As part of our inquiries, we are talking to people in the area to find out more about Penny and the circumstances leading to her death. Understandably, people will have concerns and suspicions, but I would ask you to contact us with any information, and please be aware that speculation, particularly on social media, is not always helpful. Penny's death has also been felt across the wider community of horse riders and owners. And while we can rule nothing out at this stage, there is no evidence of any harm to Spratly 
the horse that Penny was tending to at the time, or any other horses nearby. Talking to the local Echo newspaper, Penny's friend Nicola Crawford said she'd known Penny for the past five years and used to cut her hair. She said, Penny started off as a customer, but our friendship blossomed from there after I gave her one of my horses, Sprat, who she still had. She was so bubbly, loud, but absolutely lovely. She didn't have a bad bone in her body. Penny was so full of life, and I can't imagine why anyone would want to hurt her. She was a single mum for a long time, as long as I've known her, and did everything she could for her children. For a long time she was lonely, and her horses were her passion. But then she met Pete through a friend, and everything finally seemed to have worked out for her. Nicola said that Penny had recently rented the field where she was murdered to keep her horses, because it was near her new home in Blackfield. She added, Penny had a tough life, but her and Pete were like peas in a pod and spent every possible moment together. He would often go up to meet her at the yard, which is when he would have found her. I just don't get what's happened. Penny was very independent and would constantly visit the horses to give them hay, but she never spent hours up there as she was a busy working mum. And Peter told a similar story of their happy life together, beginning with how they met, saying, Me and Penny met by fate. I could have gone to any pub, but I happened to go to that one. She happened to be helping the landlady out. She wasn't supposed to be there. Everything was going fine in our lives, and we were ready to grab life with both hands together. She doted on her kids and she would help anyone, he said. She was the life and soul of the party. She just couldn't do enough for people. As you will know with these inquiries, Peter was the first who had to be eliminated, which police were able to do quickly. But after this, the case got a little stuck as there appeared to be no witnesses who had seen Penny as she tended her horse, and the murder weapon couldn't be found. Mind you, This wasn't surprising as the Beaulieu estate where her horse was kept was 7,000 acres and it was the isolation and solitary nature of the environment which made it so attractive for Penny and others who kept their horses there. So if Peter, her husband, wasn't responsible, was Penny having an affair or was she involved in some other activities which could have led her to mix with people who may have wanted to hurt her? She was with an ex, Timothy Carr, for around seven years, and their relationship was, well, it was volatile, but he too was quickly eliminated as a suspect. After all, he had moved on as well, and was soon to be married. Detectives thought it might have been a random murder, and Penny had just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or was it something to do with horses and the horse world? Detectives just weren't sure. But they did have a lead. A car key was located near Penny's body, and police knew that finding the owner of the car keys was going to be vital in their search for the killer. After all, why else would the key be lying in the field next to the body? Sure, it could be an old set of lost keys, but that was pretty unlikely. As so often happens in cases we have looked at on this podcast, we, I think, well I do, certainly assume that murderers are professional. We've heard of that a few times, but that is really a minority of cases. Usually obvious clues are left behind. And equally often, the solution to the murder is found when the murderer, or people close to them, 
are unable to keep quiet about their crimes. Sometimes it's boasting, and sometimes it's just that natural human inclination to share our lives with others. Another truism we hear about so often is that however much the killer trusts the person they confide in, that person is usually unable to keep the information to themselves either, for a variety of reasons. 36-year-old Justin Robinson had previously served time in prison for more than 70 thefts, and he was also a minor player in the local drug scene. He was a pretty reliable, relatively scary, petty criminal, but he was very low-level, and frankly, he wasn't the brightest tool in the box. He was well-known in the local community, and he had a large number of contacts, which is of course necessary if you choose to eke out a meagre living in the business he had chosen. But he was almost too human for the job he was in, and he couldn't stop talking, and his judgement of reliable friends was poor. He spoke about the ethos behind his work, which he described as follows. Theft, I love it. Drugs, I love it. Murder, I hate it. I steal money, I don't harm people, I've never hurt a woman, and never carried an offensive weapon. But when the opportunity came to step up a level, Justin Robertson was unable to resist. Penny Davis's ex-partner was Timothy Carr. The pair had been together from around 2005 to 2012, but it was a very on-off toxic relationship. There were some great times, but it certainly wasn't one of the great romances. Timothy had a son, Benjamin, who was 22 at the time of Penny's murder. Unbeknown to Penny, Benjamin Carr really, really disliked Penny. In fact, that just doesn't do justice to how he felt. He absolutely hated her, and he wished her nothing but misfortune. Tension had first flared between him and Penny in 2005, when he said he caught her having sex with another man while she was with his dad. Penny was distraught about this, claiming that she'd been raped, but Benjamin refused to back up her story to police, insisting that what he saw was consensual sex. The pair clashed again when Benjamin Carr was just 14, when Penny reported him to the police for two sexual assaults. Benjamin denied the claim, saying it was Penny taking her revenge for his lack of support on the earlier incident. Neither matter was taken further by police. And whatever the true circumstances of both cases, we will never know. But what is beyond any doubt at all is that these incidents weren't forgotten by Benjamin and he would never forgive Penny. There had been no contact between him and Penny after she finally split with Benjamin's dad. But animosity resurfaced earlier that year when Penny discovered that Benjamin Carr's dad was to marry his new partner, Alison McIntyre, as well as sending Facebook messages to Alison, including one saying, good luck, you will need it. Penny returned to the sexual assault allegations against Benjamin and threatened to go back to police with new evidence. She sent Facebook messages to Alison McIntyre, saying one of the alleged victims of Carr would be making a statement to police. She wrote in one message, good luck, you will need it, and in another, I can't forgive him. All the crap he gave me. I hate him and all his family. When he found out about these messages, Benjamin Carr, he just couldn't believe it. Fearful that these allegations would threaten his new job, working with troubled teenagers, 
and also ruined the upcoming wedding of his dad. Carr's hatred for Penny saw him desperate to put a stop to her talking. He didn't want this hanging over him for the rest of his life, and as he saw it, there was only one way to put a stop to it forever. By murdering Penny. But Benjamin Carr wasn't planning to commit this crime himself, and he thought he knew just the person to do it, Justin Robertson. He'd known Robertson for several months through dealing Class A drugs, and to Carr he seemed to fit the bill perfectly. A petty crook, fueled by greed, with a reputation of someone not to be messed with, and someone who he trusted. He offered Robertson £1,500 to do the deed, and knowing that Robertson hated paedophiles, Carr lied about Penny sexually assaulting him as a child to ensure that his hired help had the justification he needed to carry out the plan. With this information, combined with the fact that Carr owed him cash, Robertson didn't need much persuading, and he agreed to do the hit on Penny. Over a period of just two weeks, the pair meticulously planned the murder, with regular meetings and phone contact, as well as carrying out surveillance trips, with Robertson following Penny on at least two occasions to work, to work out her routine, and to discover the best place to carry out the murder. And on the day itself, all went to plan as Robertson followed Penny from work, and then murdered her in the field while she was tending her horses, and not being seen by any witnesses. It was almost a perfect crime, and he could have got away with it, except that he dropped the car keys he'd used to drive to the area by Penny's body. These belonged to a friend of his, Samantha McLean. After the killing, Robertson called a friend to take him away from the scene. But after realising he'd lost the car keys, he asked another friend to take him back to the road near Penny's home, where he'd parked his Vauxhall car to try to find the keys. He couldn't find them so he stopped off to buy some cigarettes and a Toblerone chocolate bar. But straight away, within hours of the murder, Robertson began to talk. Natasha Brooke went to the police to tell them that Robertson had arrived at her house at about 7.30pm on the day of the murder. She said, He said to me he had done something stupid. He turned round and said he had killed someone. I thought he was joking, as he has a twisted sense of humour. But he turned around and said, I killed a woman. He said I would read about it soon enough. She added that he did three lines of cocaine in her kitchen and picked up a knife which was around six inches long and said it was similar to the one he had used to stab Penny. It wasn't until the next day that Natasha found out about Penny's murder after a friend shared a Daily Echo story online. She said, I started to shake and I couldn't breathe. All that kept running through my head was that he'd actually done it, and he told me. She contacted police two days later, telling officers that she'd signed her own death warrant by speaking to them. She feared that Robertson would kill her, and she felt like a prisoner in her own home. After leaving Natasha's, Robertson went to stay with friends near Salisbury, and then with his brother in Gloucester. But on hearing he was the prime suspect for the murder from friends, Robertson decided to come home to hand himself into police to try to prove his innocence. But before he did, he confessed again to two friends over a cup of tea on a boat being restored at a nearby boatyard. Frank Carr, no relation to Benjamin, told detectives that he had gone to the yard to work on the restoration, 
and had been shocked to see Robertson there. It was unexpected and I was scared. A friend was there and said, it's all right, we've talked him into giving himself up. Frank Carr said he'd heard the rumours that Robertson had been involved in the killing and Robertson confessed, justifying it by saying that Penny had been a paedophile and he knew that she'd interfered with Ben Carr while having a relationship with Ben's dad, Timothy, adding that Ben had paid him £1,500 to kill her. But Frank Carr thought it was hot air. Frank told Robinson he didn't believe him and questioned how he could kill a woman. Robertson replied, No, I was calm, I just had a couple of smokes. And asked how Robertson could sleep. Frank said that Robertson had told him, The first night I saw her face, even with my eyes shut. But after that it was fine. Frank and a friend then agreed to drop Robertson to a friend's house and they would then accompany him to the police station. At his police interviews, Robertson denied any involvement. He claimed he had no idea how the car keys ended up next to Penny's body. He said he'd always tried to protect women and would never harm one. He described the place where Penny died as the posh area, claiming he'd been there looking for houses to burgle. I robbed a butcher's shop out there. I robbed a clothes shop, he said. It was rich people who didn't know how to protect it, but I only steal things they could claim on their insurance so it didn't cost them and Robertson denied making any confessions to anybody. 36-year-old Justin Robertson was accused of murder. Benjamin Carr and Samantha McLean were charged with conspiracy to murder. They all denied the charges. Giving evidence at the trial at Winchester Crown Court, Justin Robertson admitted he was a thief, but not a murderer, insisting, I'm not on that level, it's not my thing. Classy to the end. In the witness box, Robertson turned to Benjamin Carr and said, Ben, I swear to you, I'm going to chase you around every jail in the country. I promise you, I'm coming for you. As I said before, the guy's no mastermind. Turning back to the jury, he went on, I don't care what you lot think. I hope you find me not guilty, but by the end of this, my friends and family will know I'm telling the truth. That's what I care about. Robertson told the court, I will look at any one of you in this courtroom and I will look you in the eye and tell you I did not do this. He admitted he was in Bewley on the day of Penny's murder but that he was there to burgle a house opposite the field where she was stabbed to death. He said he approached the house but when he saw a man come out he went back to McLean's car and discovered the keys were missing. He told jurors he had left them in the car and when he couldn't find them he called his friend to pick him up. When asked if he had dropped the keys during the attack on Penny, he replied, definitely not. And when asked how the keys ended up beside her body, he said he did not know. When asked about his relationship with co-defendant Carr, Robertson said they were never friends and had first met around three months before Penny's death. He said they only ever spoke about drugs, that they never spoke about Penny and insisted that Carr was lying when he said they had. He was also asked if he confessed the murder to anyone, to which he replied, Why would I confess to something I didn't do? He told the court he was gobsmacked and devastated when he discovered he was wanted by police for Penny's murder. He said he didn't go to the police for another three days because the police had convicted him for many different things that he claimed he didn't do in the past. But he added that once he found out that his friends who had children had seen their homes raided by armed police, he had to come back to try to clear his name. Summing up, the prosecution told jurors it was a meticulous plan 
that may well have succeeded if Robertson had not dropped the keys of McLean's car beside Penny's body. They added, this was the key to the whole discovery of those involved. They said there was overwhelming evidence pointing to Robertson's guilt and any suggestion that he was in Beaulieu on that day to burgle was just incredible. Robertson's barrister, Rupert Pardo, in his closing speech told jurors that the prosecution had not proved without reasonable doubt that his client was the killer. He told jurors there was no forensic evidence linking Robertson to Penny's killing, the murder weapon was never found, and that when he was picked up by his friend from Beauty that day, she did not notice any blood on him. He also pointed to evidence of another horse owner, who said he saw Penny alive at around 3.20pm, after Robertson had been picked up. He admitted the car key was a difficult issue for Robertson's case, but suggested it could have been planted by Penny's body. He also suggested that a six-foot, big-nosed man seen by the gate of the field, by a lorry driver just before 4pm, could not be ruled out as being the killer. The jury left to consider their verdicts. They took 13 hours to find Justin Robertson guilty of stabbing Penny to death as she tended her horses, having conspired with Ben Carr. Robertson received a life sentence and was told he would serve at least 32 years. Benjamin Carr was found guilty of conspiracy to murder and was handed a life sentence. He will serve a minimum of 30 years in custody. And co-defendant Samantha McLean was found not guilty of the same charge. Robertson's girlfriend, Leanne Doyle, 24, had earlier pleaded guilty to perverting the course of justice after she disposed of his shoes. Penny's husband, Peter, described the days after her death as an absolute nightmare. I know people say these things get better with time, but it's going to take me personally a long time to get over it, he said. I see people kissing and holding hands, and that's how me and Penny were. Carl has still got his mum, and they will both still have people waiting for them outside. We've got to live here without her every single day. I don't think that's justice at all. I just hate everything at this moment, because this time last year we just paid for the wedding and everything was looking forward to the end of next month. Now I just hate everything. Going down to the horses, seeing people holding hands, enjoying the sun, it hurts because that's what me and Penny used to do. And it's hard for the children too, because they are all having their first birthdays without their mum, and that is heartbreaking. Her eldest daughter Sophie was forced to spend her 21st birthday at court, Penny wasn't there to see Alex at his passing out parade with the Navy and she won't be there to see Daniel at his prom when he leaves school this summer or Joseph embark on his exams. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Although we haven't heard all the evidence, I think it's hard to disagree with the verdict of the jury on this case. Robertson, well, he was just a bit dim, wasn't he? I mean, to risk your whole life in prison for 1,500 quid it's hard for me to fathom. And if he is released from jail, approaching 60-ish, how will he cope and what will he do? Benjamin Carr, that's a strange one. How would you react if allegations from your past were coming back to cause problems in your life? But he's got a long time to reflect on the decision he took. In prison at 22 and then not released until his 40s, what a waste of his youth. But of course our thoughts are with Penny's family and friends. 
How often have people just reached a state of happiness in their lives when it's all taken away from them suddenly? Penny would have had no idea what was happening as Robertson approached her in the field, and the utter terror she must have felt as the attack began is hard to comprehend. We can just hope, I guess, that her family are able to live a full, happy life and not be defined by this terrible event. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. So that is all for me for now, and in fact for 2018. This is the last time we will speak this year. Emotional, huh? Okay. Wipe the tears from your eye and join us on the Facebook group to discuss this case and any other aspect of UK True Crime. Or to support the show, please just head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. So until we speak again next week, have a very happy Christmas, cheerio, and remember, stay classy.